Please be seated. And if you will turn in your Bibles to Exodus 12, we'll be looking at those passages uh, starting in verse 1. One of the hardest things as a parent is re-watching the same movie over and over and over again. Um, you know, you, you say, hey, we're going to have a movie night. What movie do you want to watch? And they say, this one. And you're like, again? Like, we've watched it four times in a row. Like, we could watch something else. Um, or maybe it's not movies, but like bedtime stories. Like, you've read the same story for a week, and you're like, I've memorized it. I don't need to pick up the book anymore, but maybe we should choose something else to read. Um, and I think for readers of the Bible, um, that can be one of our hardest things as well, is, is rereading the same story over and over again, where, where we go, I know this story already. I can tell you this story already. I can tell you what takes place in this story. I can tell you the basic ideas of this story. And I'm sure for some of you, for readers of the Bible, uh, this story, the Passover story, one of the major stories of the Bible, you could probably get up here and just share it with us without even opening your Bible. However, God actually calls us to approach the Bible in the childlike wonder and amazement as if we're reading it for the first time. To go to it and say, what is God teaching me here? What is God showing me? So can we do that today as we read the Passover story? Even though you might have read it before, even though you might have memorized it, let us read it together with that childlike wonder and amazement. So this is the Passover, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one, of, one with their nearest neighbor, taking into account the number of people there are. And you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire with, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast." Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn, both male and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the feast of the unleavened bread, because it is on this day, this very day, that I brought your divisions out of Egypt." Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. 
In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the fourteenth day until the evening of the twenty-first day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Whether he is alien or native-born, eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and sides of your doorframe. Not one of you shall go out in the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egypts, he shall see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and pass over the doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord has given you as he has promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped, and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Let us pray. God, we, most of us, a lot of us know this story. Um, we know this story. We know of your salvation. We know of, of what happened in Egypt. But we pray that as we examine this story this morning, that we can examine our own hearts. That we can see the faith of the Israelites and say, do we have that faith? Do we have genuine, real faith in you? And then let us see the judgment that is brought against the Egyptians and say, we want that judgment too. We want judgment brought down on evil and sin. And then let us see of your salvation, that you brought salvation not just for the Israelites, but for the whole world, for us as well, so that we may be saved from the punishment of sin. In your name, amen. Now here for a second that you're uh, hearing this story for the first time about Israel being in Egypt. So go back to the beginning. You're, you're hearing about how the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. You're hearing about how the babies were thrown into the Nile and killed, and yet Moses, Moses was rescued, and Moses was saved, and he grew up in Pharaoh's court, and eventually Moses flees to the desert, and he finds the burning bush, and, and God says to Moses, go, rescue my people. And then Moses come back, and there's plague after plague after plague. And then there's this announcement in chapter 11 of the final plague, of the plague of the firstborn. And then there's this sort of pause. Because throughout this the, the story, it has been going at a pretty good clip. You know, something says it's going to happen, and then it happens. And something says it's going to happen, and it happens. But this, there is a pause here in which... Moses announced the plague and then says, but wait, we have to do something. And what we see in this pause, even though people feel something coming, what we see in this pause is how the Israelites respond to their relationship with God. They are told that this plague is coming, but Moses says, before this happens, let's talk about our God and our relationship to him. So let's do that this morning. Let's talk about our God and our relationship with him. And in this pause, we are going to see how people experience their faith, how they experience their genuine faith, how God has perfect judgment against sin, and finally, we'll see God's salvation. So first, where do we see uh, the people's faith in this passage? Well, right away, I, I would say a lot of us see it in their actions, right? 
Now, if I imagine myself, my northeastern, western cultured person, if Moses started giving these commands, I think I'd want to take out my phone or take out a pen and paper and start writing down like, okay, a lamb, okay, lamb, all right, without blemish, without blemish, okay, all right, make sure to do this and this, this. It feels like a list of commands to obey, a list of actions to perform. But is, is that what God's doing for the people? Is it simply just something to do? Is it, is it a list of check marks where, oh, if you do this, then you'll be good. If you do this, then, then I'll be happy with you. Is it, is, it a, it is, a, is it a to-do list? Or maybe you say, it's not a to-do list. Obviously, God wouldn't do that to us. But maybe God's testing the people. Maybe God is finally saying, listen, I, I, I want you to step up. I need to make sure that your faith is genuine. Let me see if these people will really obey. But I think in either one of these cases, that's, that's not what's going on here. Because if you look at the previous plagues, and not all of the plagues, but in most of the plagues, the trouble of the plague hit the Egyptians alone and the Israelites were spared. And the Israelites didn't have to do anything to be spared. It was just simply God said, this plague is coming. It's going to come for the Egyptians and Israelites, you are spared. And what we know from those earlier plagues or what it showed is that, is that God is omniscient. He knows and he sees everything. He's aware of everything. So would he really, really need a sign to know who the faithful were? Would he really need the blood on the doorpost to go, oh, I was, I was about to strike this house, but now I remember that they're actually part of the faithful. Or is, is there something else going on? Is there something deeper? Well, what can we say of these actions? It's actually the people are just responding to the faith that they already had in God. What God is calling them to do, it's not a checklist. It's not to prove their faith. It is to say, God is actually having them live out the faith that was already present in their lives. And, and that's the point. What's taking place is that these actions is that God is actually bringing them and inviting them in to experience the salvation that he is bringing. And you all know what it's like to experience something. Uh, think, think back to a Thanksgiving, all right? Um, a, Thanksgiving, a good Thanksgiving, okay? You have all the food, all right? You have the family gathered around. You have the, the fireplace going. You have a nice warm setting, right? And at some point during the meal, someone says, let's talk about what we're thankful for, right? And is it just a thought exercise? Is it just, oh, let's take some time to think about it? Or are you experiencing the thankfulness that you're thinking about? You're experiencing it, right? Because you're experiencing it in the bounty of the food that you're participating. You're experiencing it in the family you have. You're experiencing it in the home that you have. You're experiencing the thankfulness. And that's what's happening in the Passover right now, is that this isn't just some exercise for this people. This isn't just some, some thought exercise of, oh, let's think about how God's saving us. No, no, no. This is them experiencing the salvation that is being brought for them by God. And it is not just in their actions that we see their faith, but we actually also see it in their surrender. And it's not just a lamb that they're giving up, but it's actually giving up their entire way of life. For 430 years, they've lived in Egypt. They, they have family who are buried in Egypt. This is, this, is the life, this is the only life they've ever known. And yet God is now saying, make haste because you are going to leave. And no doubt, if they are going to leave, they're going to leave some stuff behind. They're going to leave behind the life they ever known and wander into a desert saying, we hope for something better. All right? And, and they're going to leave in such a way where they have to give up a lot. And now we, on this side of history, know that they are giving up something, you know, 
for something better, right? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not this great shock to us of, of course they're going to give up slavery for, for, to be their own nation. But they don't know that. All they know is that they have to trust in the promises of God and say, I'm going to give up something good, something that I know, for something greater. And we know what it's like to struggle with that. There's plenty of things in this world where we say, oh, this is a good thing, and yet God calls, it, calls us to give it up for something greater. That's our tithes and offerings. And not only that, but, but you've done that actually this morning for most of you, right? Today was daylight savings, right? You said, I'm going to give up this extra hour that I have where you got, all could have slept in, bed in, your, bed in your beds, nice and warm. This is good. You gave that up for something greater to come here and worship the Lord. You said, I'm going to give up something good for something greater. And that's what the Israelites are doing. It's because they trusted in the promises that God was for them. That God really did have something greater for them. That, that give up all this, give up your life so that you follow me. And that's, what, that's our call to faith as well. And so we see their actions, we see their surrender, but how do we know their faith is real? Look at verse 27. It says, after Moses explains to them what they are to do, it says, then the people bowed down and worshipped. How do we know their faith is real? Because they worshipped before anything happened. Before any of the salvation took place. Before God rescued them, they worshipped him. Their faith wasn't based on the actions of God. Because something hasn't happened yet. Their faith was based on their relationship with God on the fact that they trusted God, on the fact that they believed in God, and the fact that they said, we are going to worship God even though nothing has happened yet. And so the question for us, is our faith genuine? Does our faith move us to action like the Israelites? Not as a checklist, not as a, well, I read the Bible, this is what I'm supposed to do, but to participate in the redemption, to actually experience the salvation that we have. Does our faith move us to surrender where we say, I'm willing to give up the good things of this world for something greater which is out of this world? And does it move us to worship even before anything has happened, even before we say, God, I'm going to worship you even in the darkest of times because I know of your promises. I know you are for me and not against me. And so what this passage, these actions show is that the people had faith in God. That the belief, trust, obedience in God was the beginning, middle, and end of their relationship with God. And this needs to be true for us as well. That is our faith, and that is the faith of the people. So we see their faith, but what about the faith of the Egyptians? The Egyptians' faith is a faith that leads to judgment, not salvation. Throughout the story, we've seen the evils of the Egyptian. The the murdering of children, of slavery, of, of promises broken in which they say, oh, you can go, never mind, you have to stay. But God makes clear throughout this passage that he has superiority and sovereignty over these supposed gods of Egypt. For 430 years, the Egyptians looked and claimed these false gods as true, and they used that faith in those gods to do what? Evil evil and wicked things, to, to live a messed up way of life, of, to say, this is the right course of action because we are worshiping these gods and we are allowed to do this. And yet they claimed faith in a false God that was murdering people. 
And so what God is going to do is look in verse, what God does, look in verse 12. He says this, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And what God is saying is that judgment is coming on the wickedness of the Egyptians. And I want everyone to know that I am the true, holy, and righteous God. That these are false gods. That, that God's judgment on Egypt will show everyone, everyone, that these gods that they were following were frauds, were, were, were following evil and wicked things, that, that they were being foolish to themselves and to everyone else around them. And we see how this has taken place in the story, right? We've already seen this, that, that God has been displaying his judgment through the plagues. And what the plagues and the purpose of the plagues was to move the people from following false gods to following God, of from doing evil to doing the right thing. And for a brief moment in some of the plagues, the people would turn back and they go, even Pharaoh said, I've sinned. And yet he goes back to the false gods. And so what happens? Verse 29 and 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And so God brings the ultimate judgment on the Egyptians so that they would know that he is God and not just that, but that they would turn away from their evil. And I recognize for us that this can sometimes be hard for us to understand because we think this seems harsh, this seems excessive, this seems unnecessary, but go back to what the Egyptians were doing. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were slaughtering the Israelites. And what were they going to continue to do? Slaughter the Israelites. They were going to continue to enslave the Israelites. And God's judgment on Egypt was a derailment of that plan. God's judgment on Egypt was the ending of the pain that Egypt had brought through the worship of false gods. And judgment by God is done in perfection. It is done by his holy, righteous, and perfect will. So we are not called to duplicate that judgment, but we can and should desire and long for the judgment of God to be done against the wicked and sinfulness of this world. When we see leaders following false gods, using weak reasons to bomb hospitals and schools, to invade and wound and hurt and kill, we should desire God's judgment. That God would come and make them turn away from the evil that they are causing. That God would execute his judgments on the sin and wickedness of this world so that people may know he is God and turn away from evil. And this passage is a warning for those who commit evil. 
And what it says is that although none of us would claim to be Pharaoh, although none of us would claim the false gods of the Egyptians, judgment is coming for all who commit evil. And that is all of us. Because of our actions, our ways, we have at times followed things other than God. I mean, just take a moment to review your life. Are there people in your life who would say, I wish the judgment of God would fall on them so they would no longer inflict sin and pain and death on me. And I recognize that I've been on both sides of this equation. I have been the one who has gone to school and said, I hope this person isn't here today. Because when they are, I feel like death. And at times I actually think that death might be a better outcome than what I'm about to experience from the actions and words of what this person is going to do to me. And so yes, I want God's judgment to come upon them so that they would turn away from their evil ways. And I actually hope that you would be a part of that in which you would say, yes, I want judge, God's judgment to come upon the wickedness that was caused against you so that it would cease. But at the same time, I recognize that there are probably people in my life who have, who have hoped for God's judgment against me, who have said, I wish God's judgment would fall upon Mike so he would no longer do this evil and wicked thing and he would turn away from it and turn to the true God, the one who says, I need to love others. I need to show kindness to others. I need to love my neighbor as myself. And so although it's hard for us to see it first, we can recognize that God's judgment is actually a good thing, especially when it causes people to turn away from evil and wicked things. It's like a parent bringing down judgment upon a child. The parent loves the child but says, I need you to stop what you're doing. I need you to stop this evil and wicked thing you're doing. And that is God and his judgment. He loves us and yet at the same time he says, you need to stop your sin. You need to stop your evil. You need to stop your wickedness. And so there is a judgment for us. There's a judgment for the Egyptians. And there's a judgment for the Israelites. But there's a difference of outcome on the judgment. Because for the Egyptians, they experience God's judgment. For the Israelites, they receive salvation. So how are they spared? Well, once again, this might be the point where we're tempted to say, I already know the story. And pastor, I know where you're going with this. It's about Jesus. Yes, it's the Sunday school answer. It's about Jesus. But first, how do we get there? All right, go back to the story. What are they feeling in the moment? Look at verse 22 and 23. And just imagine yourself standing there as you're listening to this from Moses. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of your doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Just imagine that you are standing there when Moses first makes the announcement that the firstborn is going to die. And as you're standing there, you're probably standing there with your family. And you turn and you look at them. And they might look at you. And you as a family look and go, that's the one. 
that's the person who's going to die tonight. It could be a cousin, it could be an uncle, it could be a child, it could be you. That is the one that God's going to bring judgment on. That is going to be the one that dies. And the weight of death is hanging over in which you hold your family close knowing this might be the last time that we see them. That tonight is going to be the night that, they got, that God takes them away. And you feel that weight of death. You feel the death that this person is going to die. And this isn't just some story. This isn't just some holiday. But this is a real life picture of what the Israelites went through. That the people experienced. And what Moses said is in order for this not to happen, you need to place all your hope and trust in God to protect you and your family. And what the people see and what we see is as they took the lamb and as they killed the lamb, they saw that the person who was supposed to receive the judgment, receive the death, now being placed on the lamb. That the lamb is the one experiencing death. That the lamb is the one experiencing the slaughter. And that the judgment for the firstborn would no longer fall on them, but fall on the lamb. That God provided a way for the firstborn to be rescued. And as the blood was applied to the doorposts in their homes, you knew that salvation was coming for you and for your household, especially for the firstborn. And as you were applying the blood to the doorpost, it wasn't just for your house, was it? Because you saw your neighbors doing it. And you would look and you would say, wait a second, this salvation isn't just for me. It's not just for my family, but it's for a whole nation. It's for our entire nation because God was moving them from a place of constantly fearing death of the Egyptians, of, of fearing death that night from his judgment to a place of redemption, of salvation, of taking their first steps as a free, holy nation. And that feeling of freedom must have come over them. First, there's the fear of death, of, of the first announcement of saying, this person's going to die. But then, as they were experiencing the salvation, as the lamb was killed, they said, wait a second, salvation is coming from my house. As the blood was applied to the door, they said, salvation is coming from my house. And as they saw the blood applied to the nation, they saw salvation is coming for us. And there's this feeling of freedom that the threat of the death of the firstborn was not going to happen. That they were going to live. That they as a nation were going to be saved. That they were going to be rescued. That they were going to go free. And even though we are not in their story, we are in the story. The story of God's word. And if at any, and, and I imagine that right now, if you tried, you could feel the weight of death in your life. Where you can say, we've, we've all experienced what physical death looked like of, of someone being cut off from us. But it's not just that. You've experienced the weight of the death of sin being done against you. In which people have said things and done things against you in which you said, I have experienced death. And you've experienced slavery to sin in, in which we can say, none of us are righteous. None of us are perfect. None of us have done good. And yet we know that we have inflicted evil. We have inflicted death. We have inflicted sin on others. And, we can, and if you just take a moment and say, just imagine yourself standing in front of a mirror and God saying, 
judgment is coming for the wickedness and evil and sin that you've done, and you go, that's me. I deserve to die. God's judgment and death is coming for me. And what the Bible says is that the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for the things that we have done. But we have a lamb. John 1.29 says, Look, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as you're feeling that weight of death, the death of Christ is to be the lamb that is slaughtered on your behalf. He is killed on a cross and the blood is spilled so that it can be a sign to you that you have been forgiven, that salvation has come for you, that when God comes in judgment, the judgment will pass over you and you receive this feeling of freedom. If I'm free, (laughs) judgment is not coming for me because it was placed on Christ and I get to go free. And I get to live as a part of God's holy nation. And so how do you receive this salvation? How do the people receive it? It is by faith. It is by faith alone. It is by having a relationship with God. It is to turn away from the false gods that we pursue. And and for us, for a lot of us, the false gods that we pursue is just our own wisdom. (laughs) It is to turn away from that and instead turn to God, to cry out to God and say, save me from my sin, to confess and trust and put your faith in God alone and put your trust and faith that the judgment that you deserve has been placed on the Lamb of God Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. And I recognize that I have attempted and honestly failed at times to focus on these stories, even though I've heard them tens of, and hundreds of times. But most of the time I failed because I was just looking at this as another story, not what God calls it to be. Because what did God call the Israelites to do? as they went out from Egypt, that he called them that year after year, they were to celebrate the Passover. Not just as a holiday, not just as a family gathering, not just as a story, but as a part of their relationship with him. And how did they show it? They said, this is significant. This is a big deal. This is the first day of our calendar year. This is, this is important. This is important. Us gathering together and celebrating the Passover, this is significant to our lives. And not only that, but did they do it by themselves? No, they gathered the family together. They said, we as a family are gonna gather together and worship the Lord and not just remember what happened, but experience what happened to go through and say, look how God has saved us, to to taste the lamb and say, this is what it was like. And not just for themselves, not just for the few generations afterwards, but their children and their children's children and their great-grandchildren, and not just their children, but the whole nation, right? The whole nation being gathered together to say, we know of God's salvation for us. And so what is our call? It's to experience God's salvation week in and week out. To say, this is significant. This, right now, 15 after 12, this is significant. This is a big deal. This is important. 
and to gather the family together, to not say, I'm going to church, we're going to church. As a family, we are gathered together to go to church together, to worship God together, and not just remember his salvation, not just to say, oh, that's a good point, but to, to experience it, to worship, to, to call out in song, to pray together, to, to rejoice together. And it's not just for ourselves, and it's not just for our children, but it's for an entire nation of God's people. That the nations may experience God's salvation, gathered together on a Sunday morning, worshiping our Savior. And so let us go out today, first examining our faith, saying, does our faith call us to action? Does our faith call us to surrender? Does our faith call us to worship? And then pray for God's perfect judgment, that it would come upon sin and wickedness in this world, that God would cause people to turn away from the evils and we can get in right relationship with the Lord. And then lean on Jesus for our salvation and return again and again and again to experience that salvation. Not just hear about it, but really experience it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the ways that you have rescued us. We thank you that you care for us, that it is not just a, a thought exercise in which we go, oh, you, you make a good point about how you save us, but you, you call us to come and worship you, to say, I know of the Lord and I know of his salvation. I pray that we experience it this morning and every Sunday that we gather together. I pray not only for that, but I pray for the judgment of the wickedness and evil in this world, that you would continue to bring down leaders who cause destruction on others, that even in our own hearts, you would make us turn away from the sin and wickedness that we desire to pursue and instead turn back to you, the true, righteous, and holy God. And I pray that we recognize your salvation that we are able to call out to you and say, although we have done wickedness, although judgment is deserved for us, we know that judgment has fallen on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, so that the sins may be taken away from us. And we pray we call out to you each and every day, remembering, experiencing your salvation. In your name, amen. Now let us stand and experience our faith and experience that salvation by